Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, two of summer's most interesting art historical exhibitions. First up, Susan Davidson joins me to discuss Robert Motherwell Pure Painting, which is at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through September 3rd. The exhibition is the first Motherwell paintings retrospective in the U.S. in a quarter century. Motherwell was a New York-based painter prominent in the development of abstract expressionism. From Fort Worth, Motherwell will travel to the Bank Austria Kunstforum in Vienna. The exhibition catalog was published by Hatje Kantz Verlag. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about 55 bucks. Links on manpodcast.com as usual. On the second segment, Beyond the Light, Identity and Place in 19th Century Danish Art at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. But first, Robert Motherwell, after the break. Support comes from Getty, presenting The Gospel at Colonus, a one-of-a-kind theatrical event under the stars that reimagines the story of Oedipus as a redemptive musical celebration. Hailed as, quote, a feast for both the eye and the ear by the Chicago Theater Review, the show follows the blinded Oedipus as he seeks rest after a lifetime of tragedy, but he is pursued by enemies, including his own son. Based on Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus from the 5th century BCE, This adaptation blends Greek myth with black spiritual practice for a jubilant, life-affirming journey. Co-produced by Court Theater, conceived and adapted by Lee Breuer, with music composed by Bob Telson. Thursdays through Saturdays, this September at the Getty Villa Museum. Book your tickets now at getty.edu. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Dwayne Linklater, My Mother's Side. Interrogating the construct and culture of museums, their conventions, and their historical exclusion of indigenous content, My Mother's Side features sculpture and video that focus on ancestral practices, digital translations of tribal objects held by museums, and a series of large-scale structures made with teepee poles. Get more information and plan your visit to see Dwayne Linklater, My Mother's Side, at mcachicago.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents... Becoming Van Leo, the first international survey of the late Armenian-Egyptian photographer. Working under a pseudonym, the artist known as Van Leo rose to prominence as one of the Arab world's most celebrated studio photographers from the 1940s to the 1960s. The exhibition follows his career into the 1990s and includes many works on public view for the very first time. Becoming Van Leo is on view at The Hammer from July 15th to November 5th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Susan Davidson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak with you. Why did you think Robert Motherwell was due for a broad and, in fact, multi-continental reassessment in, in 2023? Because he's almost forgotten as one of the most prominent figures of the abstract expressionist group. In fact, the person who came up with the term, the New York School. And in many respects, he was a spokesman for the artists, at least in the beginning. I think by the 50s, things had changed quite a bit between that loosely knit group of artists. But it just seemed like time. And I was in the right place at the right time also for me when Fort Worth was looking to do a retrospective. Marla Price, who's the director there from longstanding, had collected quite a number of work just after the artist died in 1991. And she was keen to do a 
retrospective and needed a curator and the artist foundation, the Daedalus Foundation, suggested me. So it was a nice confluence of events and timing. I think you noted in your catalog essay that Fort Worth has about 70 mother wells in all? Yes, across all media. Well, let's kind of jump into the mother well career and oeuvre. And I thought a place to start might be in the early 1940s, when Motherwell goes to Columbia University to study art history under Meyer Shapiro, what impact did that interest in and engagement with art history and, of course, a leading U.S. art historian have on Motherwell and what he will begin to make as a painter in the 40s? Well, it frankly completely changed the course of his what would be his career, because I think he very much intended to be an academic. And in fact, that was the agreement almost with his father to continue to fund him. Not that he was from a, a super wealthy family, but a comfortably middle class, upper middle class California family. And the father agreed to continue to finance him if he would continue his studies. And that's why he went off to Columbia, because he was moving more into an art interest in art history rather than a philosophy, which he'd studied at Harvard and Stanford as an undergraduate. But Miles Shapiro quite rightly understood that he, he, meaning Motherwell, seemed to have more of an interest in making art rather than studying it. And he's the one who sort of pushed him and introduced him to a lot of the artists that he knew, which was a great moment for Motherwell because what was going on in New York in the 1940s with Europe, European artists here because of the war and other activities, it just brought Motherwell into an incredibly vibrant moment and very pivotal, pivotal for him, excuse me. So he just followed his, his own inclination once Shapiro gave him that push. Were there art historical interests that began to migrate into Motherwell's paintings, comma, and right away? He very quickly was being responsive to world events and a trip that he made with Mata to Mexico in 1941, I believe. And the impact of what he was visually seeing there, as well as the political activity, certainly produced very critical, important drawings and collages that Motherwell was made in those first few years before he really started painting so much. You curated the last big Motherwell show in the U.S. about 10 years ago. The Guggenheim did a show on Motherwell's early collages. So Motherwell begins working in collage kind of later on in the 1940s. Why? And who nudged him, <laughs> who guided him, nudged him toward collage? Well, I mean, the story goes that it was Peggy Guggenheim who had met Motherwell and his Mexican wife, Maria. In fact, Motherwell often said that he she liked to invite them to her parties because they were a good-looking couple. But she was the one, she was doing a collage show. She had done a collage show that Duchamp had encouraged her to do when she owned the Guggenheim June Gallery in London in the late 30s. And so she wanted to repeat that in New York. And so she says that she challenged both Pollock and Motherwell to work in collage for the first time so that they could be included in her upcoming show. We know what Motherwell made. We don't know what Pollock made. I'm still investigating that. Maybe one day I'll actually find the work. But it, for Motherwell, really set him on a pretty important course. And he really found that collage gave him a sense of freedom and composition that really informed his work for the rest of his career. 
We'll have a link to that Guggenheim show on the show page at manpodcast.com, one of my favorite shows of the last decade. One of the, I don't know, I don't know if characteristics is the right word, but one of the things that jumps out of a lot of these paintings from the 1940s is that Motherwell is abstracting away from representation, often slash usually the figure, but he's still mm -hmm. often leaving the figure as plainly recognizable as not only a source, but as like recognizably a figure. You know, was he intentionally holding on to representation or or was it just kind of a process of leaving it that we're seeing take a while? Yeah, that's a it's a good question. Of course, I did not know Motherwell and I don't really know what his mental state was at the time that but I would say that I think it's not unusual for artists who work between figuration and abstraction as they're moving toward fully toward abstraction because it's it's a bold move to go fully abstract and if you've started with a cutting and pasting in the collage format that he was working with which in itself is a lot more abstract than figurative although there's some few figurative drawings are more figurative than the collages at that time period. I think it's pretty normal that it just takes a while to to get there. I will say, for me, one of the interesting things about having done the retrospective was the first gallery in Fort Worth, and this will continue when the show goes on to Vienna, it really has a combination of fully abstract works and that in-between moment where the figure is very much revealed. But when you go through the catalog resume, there's actually more abstract works mm. in the early 40s than the, than you realize. Is there a moment in in the show, I, I guess I mean less in the hang of the show than in the chronology of the show, in which we see Motherwell leaving representation behind and and and, and arriving at or or embracing a fuller abstraction? Yes, I would say quite clearly the very first elegies that he starts to make, which are by certainly by 48, he's fully abstract and he really does not go back in terms of any kind of representation. There are occasionally forms in the late 80s that come out as being a little bit more figurative, but it's all abstraction 100% from there on out and pretty much in a particular kind of palette, restricted palette. His marriage to Helen Frankenthaler introduces a, a little bit different, more gestural activity rather than all over fill-in, I would say. You mention elegies. You know, there are two words that recur in a lot of Motherwell titles and that I wanted to ask about. One is elegy and the other is references to Spain or or, or the use of the word Spanish as an adjective. Why were those two words, or in the case of elegy, concepts so interesting and important to Motherwell? Well, I think Motherwell was a very political person, or, or humanitarian, I should say. And what he was living in, in the 40s, I mean, he couldn't really go to Europe then because of the Second World War. He could go to Mexico, and that opened up his awareness of previous historical events in the Mexican history. And he began to see these two very critical events between the Mexican Revolution and the Spanish Civil War as kind of express, he took them on as expressions of how he could explore in his painting. So that is why they come up so, so often. And, and I think because we live now many years past those events, 
we don't really understand the impact of them upon somebody who's who's much closer to them in time. I mean, as a historian, you you must really understand that. Oh, there's always that period where something falls out of discourse and primacy and mm -hmm. then often often comes back after a generation or two, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it takes there are cycles. Yes. You mentioned Motherwell's palette and and I think that you know, we all know that black, you know, when, once he gets into the early 50s, you know, blacks are, are really important. And as I went through the catalog for the show, I found so many of the same or very similar colors kind of recurring again and again. How did Motherwell think of or construct his palette? And why do some of the same or similar colors hold his interest for so long? Well, I mean, I think we all get in all of our lives, we find what brings us joy and, and also presents a level of comfort. So for Motherwell, who grew up in California, I mean, I, I think that the other the colors other than black, which are okras and blues, very much come out of his Californian upbringing. The black is probably one of the most difficult colors to work with and is because there's so many kinds of blacks. And I think for Motherwell, it probably represented not only that suffering, but it also was a challenge in terms of how you could successfully use it in large scale paintings. And some of the sh works in the exhibition are over 22 feet long, and they are incredibly powerful. I mean, they just knock you over because of his use of black. And what you also begin to understand, and the catalog unfortunately does not bring this out because of how reproductions work, as sophisticated as we are today, is his variation of the brush and of the colors black. They mix. It's not it's not a solid all over color. It's very in some pictures it's very brushy. In others there are three or four different kinds of blacks that are applied one on top of the other. And so it's it can be quite dynamic for the visitor to look at the pictures. I have found myself particularly interested, not just in the catalog for the show, but in, you know, standing in front of Motherwell paintings, in his blues. His his blues, to me, seem to owe kind of origin, maybe equal parts in Matisse and Cezanne. There is a terrific, uh, and speaking of enormity, enormous, I mean, like enormous beyond enormous, picture called the blue painting lesson a study in painterly logic from 1973-75 that's the wadsworth is that blue are those blues do you think an example of motherwell building from that interest in art history he he explored in the early 1940s or is he migrating toward those blues for reasons that are i don't know purely if that's a good phrase purely painterly Oh, I think it's absolutely both. There's no doubt that Matisse played a huge influence on him. And there are very clear references to Matisse throughout his oeuvre and, and in a more subtle way throughout the show. I so wanted to include that blue painting lesson in the exhibition, but it takes up a lot of real estate. And it's a show unto itself in, in many respects. So I, I think for Motherwell, yes, Matisse was hugely important to him, as many other French painters, more so than any other country of painters, although not so much Picasso. Maybe Picasso a little bit more in the early representational work that he does. So I, I think it's it's definitely both. It's also the exploration of 
a color that it like black has lots of different variations and hues to it which he also does i mean the the, mm-hmm. the ranges of blues i mean i i think of a certain blue that's kind of matisse blue nude or from mm-hmm. the notre dame paintings from from the early 10s that migrate into the blue painting lesson but there are like lots of other blues including in spanish elegy paintings or elegy for the spanish republic paintings yes in the 60s he starts to bring color into the into the elegy paintings and a number of them although the one of the very early Early elegies does include blue. The one that's at the Albright Knox, unfortunately, wasn't available for loan due to their reopening. But we do have the one from Reina Sofia that is from the early 60s when he reintroduces blue color, mostly blue, into into the elegies. And those are very vibrant and almost more joyful pictures in, in some ways. In recent years, and maybe by recent years, I mean like maybe like the last 15 it seems like the mother wells that American art museums exhibit the most often are the elegy pictures. And as I, as I read through this catalog, I found myself wondering why, because I'm not sure they're the most interesting mother wells. Why do you think those are the pictures to which institutions have too much, perhaps limited their interest in mother wells oeuvre? I would think it has to do with how collection hangings go within or, uh, museums, meaning that if you're having to do a collection hang of your work from the mid-50s or early 60s, you're going to go with the more iconic examples rather than the works that don't actually tell your visitor what they perhaps need to know about an artist. So I think that's a fault of curators in some mm. ways, not wanting to kind of explore the other in in an artist. Like you never go into a collection hang, even of 70s work, minimalist 70s work in an American institution and see a, an open. It, it's just, I think it, it, it's sort of that kind of false responsibility to show the iconic. And, and I think this show does a lot of that work, which is why I'm asking. If you were to revise our institutional understanding of Motherwell in certain directions, where would you most want it to change? And are there particular paintings in this show that are maybe good examples of of how we might do that? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That was one of my main focuses was not to feature the elegies. I mean, there are only about four or five of them in the exhibition. There's a bit more in the catalog for other reasons. And the other thing I did with the exhibition, the installation is I, I feathered them throughout when they appear, because he works on them pretty much across his career. So I wanted to show the progression that way rather than the impact in a single room. But to answer your question, I mean, I I don't know how I would resolve that because I'm no longer a curator in an institution that has to focus on that problem. And again, it only would depend, or it would not only depend, but it would be fully dependent upon what other work that you own that can tell the story in a different way. And most institutions don't have deep holdings. I mean, Fort Worth remarkably does. And yet they have two elegies, five or six opens, some early work. But there were other kinds of works that they didn't have. But that, too, was just the availability of what was in the studio at the at the time of his death. I thought one of the arguments within the pictures you selected for the show, and of course, as you noted a moment ago, there are always questions of, of, of availability. But I thought one of the things that really thundered out of the selection was Motherwell as colorist. Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't feel that so much. So I'm glad to mm. hear you say that. I mean, lots of blues, lots of reds, lots of okra, lots of pictures in 
so I, maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm maybe maybe maybe, maybe this is just me. But I when I th- have thought of mother wells and maybe this has something to do with their scale which i'm going to ask about in a moment but when i think of mother wells i think of those big thunderous often matte blacks as being you know heroic and dominant and as i read through the catalog i found myself feeling very dumb (laughs) because because the black came forward or seemed a lot less important than i had thought of it as being And that often there were, you know, there's a picture such as the garden window from 69 to 90 that is, you know, very Hans Hoffman-esque. And so the color just seemed much more important to me than I had typically mm-hmm. thought of color as being. Well, I think maybe subconsciously that was a, what was in my mind as I was thinking about how to organize the show or how to pull out the unexpected and then I think that's a responsibility when you do a retrospective. You you have to kind of cut the career in a lot of different ways, the expected and the unexpected. And in this case for you, you're saying it was the color. I think the color is pretty much even throughout the career. It's just that black does dominate because that's also what we think of when we think, think of Motherwell. The last room in the exhibition in Fort Worth brings together these hollow men paintings and then this fantastic picture that Motherwell repainted several times, which is a a kind of homage to Octavio Paz. And it just, the whole room, it just vibrates with, with color in a way that is really quite surprising for people, even though there's some very dark pictures in that paint, in, in that that room because there's also these monster figures, which is something too that I think people don't really know so much about with Motherwell, these kind of hidden images of monsters that start in the late fifties, really. I mentioned a moment ago that the garden window is dated 1969 slash 90. And you just noted Motherwell's never ending revision of his own pictures. One of my favorite parts of your essay was your noting that Motherwell was a relentless and even ruthless reviser of his own paintings. Did his revisiting of his own canvases go beyond the usual ways in which painters like to tinker? And why why did he keep on revising, you know, in, in the in, in the example I just mentioned, you know, for decades after instigation? I mean, he didn't do it continuously over decades. Right. I mean, it, you know, a picture would maybe go out and it would come back to the studio and then he'd think about it for a couple of years and he'd start to revise it. I, I have to say the whole sense of revision and his activity with it was came kind of late in my uh, understanding mm. of the artist. And it began to really fascinate me because I'd never, all the artists I've worked on previously are far more intuitive and work quickly and a picture is done and it's done and it leaves the studio and they don't think about it again because they're on to the next work. I think Motherwell's academic and intellectual background really allowed him the liberty to kind of keep thinking and reworking. And also there must have been some level of dissatisfaction with the painting because he, in I would say in every case, what we see today is an improvement from what it was previously. So he is most unusual in the amount of revision. And re- and it's it's not that he was a slow painter in the say the way that Jasper Johns is, but he's he just kept thinking about it. He he wanted he had a level of perfection perhaps that others came arrived at sooner. And finally we've referenced scale a number of times. Some of these paintings are just 
gigantic. I think the standard art historical almost cliche of referring to large paintings from Motherwell's era is as self-consciously heroic. I think if I were to do like a Google book search on the phrase self-consciously heroic, the number of (laughs) white male painters of the 1940s and 50s that would pop up would overwhelm the internet. How might we or how should we think of Motherwell's embrace of use of scale? Well, I think it was super important to him, as it was to all of his fellow artists at the time. I mean, you have to understand studios were bigger. There were starting to be shipping companies that could take mm-hmm. large paintings. They're, they're kind of a, and there were gallery spaces, which may, if I think of Betty Parsons or Sidney Janis, were kind of small, but those really big paintings look kind of fantastic in those small spaces. So there was a kind of change in, in what was going on culturally that allowed for larger work. And I Mm. think the economics of the, the growth in economics or financial independence that was starting to come to, especially by the fifties after the war really allowed people to kind of go big or go home kind of thing. And it's quite remarkable to be enveloped by these pictures. They really, take you in in a way that is impressive. I think of Sam Francis's paintings from from kind of the same period in the same way that the yeah. that the scale is physically impacting in a way that say maybe like a, a big Jackson Pollock isn't. Clifford Still yeah. too, right? The, the the scale of a still you feel the scything canyons acting upon you in a way that that a big drippy Pollock doesn't at least for me. Yeah. Well, and Pollock never really got overly big in the way that right. Motherwell did. And of course, Motherwell gets bigger as he earns more money and has bigger studios. What's also interesting to me is that they're not panel paintings, you know, paintings that are made up of multiple panels, but they're stretched canvas. And I was completely fascinated in install when installing the exhibition, because a lot of the paintings don't have frames on them. It's the number of staples for the stretching of the that became quite interesting to me. I mean, it's just sort of obsessive number of staples in order to hold all that canvas stretched across, tw- you know, 22 feet or something. The scale of the pictures, too, particularly after the mid-50s with Motherwell, really gave me pause in thinking about the exhibition mm-hmm. and not wanting to overpopulate it. Something he was concerned with during his lifetime, too. Yes, MoMA did a, a retrospective. It was curated by Frank O'Hara. I think it was 87 or 89 pictures. And Motherwell was, how concerned was Motherwell with the um, number of pictures and what did he do about it? <laughs> well, it weighed extremely heavily on him. But he actually worked very closely with Frank O'Hara on the show. And I think once it got hung, it was he had a different reaction to mm. their activities. And it it kind of haunted him in many ways. Uh, for the rest of his life, I would say. And there, there's an installation view of that show in the catalog where you see sort of six or seven elegy paintings hung almost cheek by jowl. We'll get those installation shots for uh, manpodcast.com. And if I remember correctly, Motherwell also wrote to subsequent venues and asked them to call the show, right? Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I mean, so <laughs> he, he was as much his own curator as he was his own artist. And he had the the confidence to do that. Not a lot of artists would get that involved in it. But Motherwell, you know, his background as a teacher and as an editor and a writer, I think it 
it just puts him in a different category than his contemporaries. Plus, he was a lot younger than those other other gentlemen, Pollock, Clifford Still, Barnett Newman, etc., Franz Klein even. And outlived him pretty much all, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he did. But he also wasn't necessarily engaged with the next group of artists, the, you know, the Twombly's, the Rauschenberg's, the, the John's. Although he did support Twombly, he, he wrote for Twombly's first catalog, uh, first exhibition at Seven Stairs Gallery in Chicago. They met at Black Mountain College in 51. Awesome. Susan Davidson, thanks very much. Thank you. Enjoyed speaking with you. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org impressionist. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas, presents the curatorial imagination of Walter Hopps, now through August 13th. The exhibition explores the curatorial vision of Walter Hopps, the Manil Collection's founding director, and one of the most talented and influential American curators of the 20th century. The critically acclaimed show at the Manil features more than 130 artworks by 70 artists. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. Welcome back. Next up, I'm joined by Stephanie Schrader, one of three co-curators of Beyond the Light, Identity and Place in 19th Century Danish Art at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. It's there through August 20th. The exhibition looks at the development of Danish art across both paintings and drawings and shows how artists helped develop the nation's cultural identity in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The excellent catalog was published by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which originated the show. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about 45 bucks, and we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Stephanie Schrader, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I think it's fair to say that American audiences don't know Danish art nearly as well as we know other European art histories, right? And I suspect that there is a lot here in this show that American audiences will feel extremely comfortable with, that they will recognize from French art or 17th century Dutch art or even Swiss art. As a 19th century guy myself, you know, there are a couple of like real Alexander Kalam moments here, right? 
So think of groups of artists in a studio and light coming in through a window on the left side of a picture and flooding a scene and nature scenes a la Corot, you know, romantic emotion. I mean, all kinds of stuff that American audiences should recognize. So this is a long way of asking, why is Danish art from this period so much less presented here than than other art from Europe? A lot of that has to do with the fact that the Danish art from the 19th century was collected and entered into the National Gallery of Denmark's collection early on because it was when the artists were making the art, it was part of the the king was collecting it. And then the king created this National Gallery. So the majority of Danish art is in Denmark. Some has creeped out, but for the most part, it really remains there. And just to give you an example, the Getty has only two paintings by Danish artists wow. and we have no drawings. So wow. it's really not something that, like you say, is a household name in America. New York has tried to change that. The Morgan Library and the Met have really tried to do some collecting in that area. But the great works are primarily in Denmark. And I guess never really entered the European art market? Not in the same way. I mean, it's the story of this exhibition is one of nationalism. So it's a national art movement. It's a national style. It's the time where the Danes are really trying to figure out what kind of art they want to make and make it their own. And it's collected, you know, not just by Danish wealthy, you know, patrons, but really by the, the government itself. And the art school is funded by the government and remains funded by the government to this day. So how did Danes in the period covered by this show, kind of the 1820s, more or less, to kind of the 1910s, more or less, mm -hmm. how did they define and think of what Danish art was and how it differed from German or French or Netherlandish art? Part of the shift that you're seeing in the way the Danes are thinking about art is that they enter the Napoleonic Wars because the British bombed them. They wanted to remain neutral. But then the British like, no, the Baltic region is very important for us. You can't remain neutral. So they side with the French, which was a disaster. And prior <laughs> to the, you know, this war, their art style really was very French-like and very British-like. But when you end up in a scenario where siding with the French results in your bankruptcy and dissolution of your borders, you know, you, you kind of want to rethink that. And then I should also say that the Germans decide, you know, to revolt against Danish rule and they lose part of their southern territories to Germany. So the German style is not really a great option either. So all those previous strong influences sort of erode during this time when the Danes try to think about, well, who the heck are we and what do we want our art school and our art to look like at this crucial time in our history? So within that continental history you just outlined, the United States is completely absent for obvious reasons, and England is only barely there. This show and, and, and kind of many other addresses of Danish art that have happened in English-speaking countries in the last 30 or 40 years have often kind of started from the same place. And that is that the 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 most important or, or most interesting thing in Danish art is the quality of light as artists have represented it. Is this an idea or an approach that mattered to Danish artists and Danish teachers in the 19th century? 
or is that entirely looking through Denmark through British or American eyes? No, it is. It does matter to the Danes because one of the things that happens during this period is that the the art, you know, the founders of the art school like Ekesberg say, you know what, we got to get out of these, you know, dungy galleries of this art school and go out and paint plein air. So they are encouraging them to go outside and look and be, you know, watch the the way the light impacts landscape and primarily landscape and monuments at the time. So they are very aware of that light and how that they need to get out of the, you know, the candlelit interiors of the academy and get outside. The other thing about the light is that what, so as they're very aware of their surroundings now and looking to see how the light impacts, you know, the the stories that they're trying to tell they also have this particular way, you know, in addition to like looking at the Eckersberg encouraging them to go outside, he also is encouraging them to idealize in some way, to look at the world through one point perspective and sort of take what they see and make it not necessarily, you know, completely naturalistic or realistic, but to sort of make it look better, <laughs> improve upon it to some way. So you're getting that you know, that way that the light, yes, on the one hand, it's carefully studied, but it's also perfected in some way. So they're going back many times to the same site and make sketches on site, but then go back into the studio and make the larger compositions and then take sometimes take the painting back out to nature and look at the light in a different time. So it's not you know, on the spot completely. It's filtered in many ways and made more beautiful. I think we'll come back to perspective in a moment. That whole idea of improving upon nature and perfecting it, very Renaissance idea. The light, though, is definitely not Renaissance. So right. how would you characterize or describe the way Danish light lives in both drawings and paintings of this period and within the show? Well, I think the light is very prominent, you know, and that is what has always seduced people with these paintings. Like, oh my gosh, you just, you can't get over it. But also you have to remember the light in these Northern Scandinavian countries is very different. It's not like Dutch art. It's not at all like Roman art. I mean, light. So you really, when you go there and you experience these, the way the clouds and the sun and the relationship between the two, it is very particular. It's not British. It's very Danish in that way. So I do think the fact that they're encouraged to go outside and look at their own surroundings and try to make sense of their own nation, they're also making sense of their own light, so to speak. It's a very interesting push and pull between a perfection of that light and then a documentation of that light. And I think what probably stands out more is actually, if I think about it now, is the Danish aspect of that light, that it really is particular. One of the things that jumped out of the catalog to me is I, I think that at least for Americans, when we think of light, we think of paintings. But quite often in this show, light is most dramatic in drawings. Do you have a favorite example or two of how an artist does really dramatic things with light in drawings rather than in paintings. Yeah. So what you're seeing, I mean, I'm a drawings curator, so I always look at the light in drawings, but what you're seeing them do is using the reserve of the paper. So they're using the blank 
paper to really create these luminous qualities. So a wonderful example of that is by an artist that you don't, I mean, there's only one example of his work in the entire exhibition, but well, I could also do the Hammerschoi too. Both the Leso, the Sunny Street at Tivoli and the Willem Hammersoy's son, Stefano Rotondo are these beautiful uses of the reserve of the paper to create, in the case of Leso, this brilliant sunlight in Tivoli, and the case of Hammershoy, this filtered light through glass windows. And you see, you know, they're using either this gray wash, or in the case of Hammershoy, they're using just graphite, and using those gray tonalities to create up like sort of a grisaille image. But the brilliance is really actually in the passages of reserve. What happens with that reserve is that your eye sort of fills that in for sunlight. You know, you don't read that as the blank page. You think it's actually sunlight sort of hitting this this wall of street scene or these creating these highlights in on the floor in this church. So you really are not res- reading it as a blank. You're reading it as a presence of light, which I think is just brilliant. I think in a lot of these drawings, there is light and there is dark and there is not much shadow. There is a pronounced, almost binary way of representing light. You mentioned the importance of, of paper and letting paper be light. Are Danish artists using particular materials, pencil, charcoal, whatever, to, you know, be be the less light places? You know, are they developing specific techniques for painting the darker passages of drawings? It's pretty standard techniques, mm-hmm. but they do use a lot of graphite. And that graphite is sharpened to such, like, an incredible point to create the refined quality of that graphite and you see variations of in graphite so the way a kopka makes uses graphite versus you know lundby who's much more powerful and broad in his handling of graphite but you know a lot of these drawings like you know sure there's paintings and there are watercolors in the show that sort of are brilliant and colorful but a lot of the show are graphite drawings and they're very delicate and refined in their handling. And that just shows that they've got a sharpener there and are constantly sharpening their graphite to make these types of refined lines. Pretty much every drawing in the show has a really high degree of finish or precision, kind of a hyper realism, realism so cute that it's kind of surreal in in surreal's original meaning. Not the 20th century art version meaning. And it's pretty consistent. And that's pretty consistent across the show. Does that tell us something about how drawing was taught in Denmark via how it was taught in other places? What you're really picking up on is the fact that Danish artists really were taught to draw first. I mean, they didn't Mm. even get lessons in the academy in painting. That was sort of something you paid extra for. So a lot of what they were trained to do originally was to draw and to copy other works of art. They had an incredible collection of plaster cast of antiquities and they would copy those or they had prints that they would copy or they would draw from the live model. But it was all, you know, about drawing necessarily, not about painting. So Eckesberg comes along and says, you know, we got to teach these kids to paint for God's sakes. But earlier, I mean, that, you know, the, the, the endless hours of copying other works of art really helped train their eye to make them incredibly proficient. This is probably not the smartest question I've ever asked, 
but we talked about one point perspective a moment ago. It thunders out of this show. Yes. At, at, the, at the risk of being incredibly banal, why was why was one point perspective so important to Danish artists or to how they were taught? Well, that is really Ekesberg. He is the one that it's gets all one that, guy. I mean, he's the teacher of most of them. Mm. And he is the one that, you know, he made two different books on perspective, different etched books to try to teach students. He made that his mission. And it's so interesting because certain artists like Hansen respond to it and, you know, take it on full on and love it. Artists like Lundby say, oh, my God, will he stop talking about perspective? So, you know, they either engage with it or they reject it. And you really see, I think, for the artists that, you know, tend more towards romantic views, they hated it more where others sort of embraced it. And a lot of them were architects. So you've got that aspect of, you know, being trained in this classical manner. Remember, most of them go to Italy and the greatest Danish artist of this time is Torvaldsen. So, and he is, you know, making copies after antiquity. So that tendency to idealize becomes very, very prevalent for many of these artists. And then a lot of them are showing architectural views. So it's not, yes. <laughs> you know, so that, you know, it's one thing you don't really see the one point perspective with the portraits per se, but you definitely see it when you're showing a street scene or the interior of a church. Many of these interior views lend themselves to that perspective, looking out a window, for example. I think that fealty to perspective even shows in some of the Italian scenes. There's a Christian Kopke. I hope my mm -hmm. pronunciation Kopka. is warm. Kopka mm -hmm. of the Forum in Pompeii, where yes. he's he's doing where, where the light is so hard that you can almost like reach out and tap it. And he's doing perspective so strictly that not even Mount, Ves Mount Vesuvius can soften it. Are Danish artists going to and interested in Italy for the same reason as, say, French artists or American artists? Or are their interests particular to Denmark and Danes? Right. That is That was a really interesting part of this exhibition because not all of them have the same take on Italy, right? So they know that it's important to go there because the art school is funding them to travel there. So they enter just like in France. Yeah. So they exactly they enter competitions back at in Copenhagen. They are awarded these trips there. Some of them stay longer. Some of them don't like it. Like Kopka, for example, doesn't like being away. He's very, very sensitive to wanting to get home. And I don't think his greatest works are made in Italy, actually. I think the, they're better when he's back in Copenhagen. But they know they have to go. And they are really, they hang out together. I mean, there's the great portrait of the seven artists in yes. the studio. And, you know, there were a brotherhood, not like the Germans, insofar as they don't have the same, you know, deep found spiritual, you know, brotherhood. But they definitely cling together because it's familiar. I mean, think about like people now traveling, you know, you when you see those, you know, Canadians with their flags, like they want to kind of flock together or Americans, you know, meeting up on trains and sticking together. The Danes definitely, they didn't speak Italian. They, they weren't as worldly in some ways, I'd say, as the French. It was a much smaller country then. And they were, you know, they have lots of conversations about 
oh, if we grow our beards a certain way, we, the robbers won't come after us. I mean, they were scared. So they go there and sometimes they just, you get a sense of them longing for home. I mean, Kopka, you really get that. He has this amazing drawing of boats at Capri. And here he is, he's supposed to be depicting Vesuvius, right? You don't even see Vesuvius. He's like, yeah, 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 that's what's important. But what I find important are the boats. And that's what was familiar to him, right? You get other artists like Rorby, who goes all as far as to Constantinople. And even though he's fascinated with the difference, he really overlays it back on his own architecture back at home. And so includes, you know, men smoking hookahs, but in front of like a Danish church. So he he can't really let go of of Copenhagen. You mentioned a great painting titled A Group of Danish Artists in Rome. It's by mm -hmm. Constantine Hansen from 1837. We'll have it and other works we've been discussing on manpodcast.com. It is a great painting that, that painting nerds will just geek out at. I could get lost in that brick floor, for example. Yeah, and he did an entire modello just of that floor, just to create the one-point perspective for the window and the floor, which is this wonderful... I mean, he really worked hard to get that painting just right. But anyway, you're going to ask me something. Your catalog essay is about portraiture. And it leads off with, I mean, speaking of painting nerdery, an, an extraordinary picture by an artist named Wilhelm Benz of a, of a young artist friend of his. This is too reductive, but I, I guess one has to describe the painting, um, you know, where, where the young artist friend of Benz's is looking at a sketch in a mirror. But there are 27 other things going on. Um, there is not two square inches of the painting that aren't highly controlled by, by Benz. I, I guess first, what is Ben's trying to do with this painting other than make a portrait of his friend in his studio? And why is Ben's so completely controlling of everything within the rectangle? Okay. So one thing you need to know about this painting, unlike the other portraits in the show, it's pretty large. So this was one of those competition paintings, right? One of the ones that was sort of showing off his skill as a painter and that was and actually won the competition and actually entered almost immediately into the National Gallery's collection. So it was a performance picture, so to speak. It was to show off his prowess as a, a painter. So it already had, you know, it, there was a lot, a lot at stake for this artist in making this painting. And the other thing, it doesn't just show Bentz showing his friend Dietlev Blunk. It shows Blunk showing another artist, Jorgen Zona. So you've got three artists, you know, represented in some ways in this composition. And, you know, it relates to another painting of Jorgen Zona painting. You know, there there's all these self-referential games at play with just these artists, you know, showing themselves and showing their friendship. But what you really get him doing here is kind of entering an age old debate is like, what is the function of art? Is art supposed to mirror nature? So you've got have the artist standing in front of this large mirror, looking at himself, looking at his composition. Is it supposed to mirror nature or is it supposed to perfect nature? And that, that, you know, goes back to Aristotle, like what, how, what is art? What are these artists doing? What are they trying to do? And I think that debate is key to sort of the entire practice of Danish art, Danish arts at this time. So are they trying to be, you know, are they going to give up the neoclassicism of the French? Are they going to move towards the, you know, more realistic aspect of the British? Like what aspect of art, what path are they going to take? 
And interestingly, Benz takes more the idealized path. He spent some time in Munich and he's influenced in some ways by the Germans. He was probably Eckesberg's most competent and famous pupil. So he takes that more idealized approach. But you see him really, it's it's a pedantic one for him, especially in this composition. But he, at the same time, he's doing that whole idealist approach. You get these incredibly beautiful, realistic details. I love the smoke that's coming out of his mouth that's, you know, reflected in the mirror as well. And the way the light comes pouring in through that window. And I just like one of my favorite details is the the pattern that's picked up on the corner of that chair, like the light that like that illuminates the, that chair and this messy palette and brushes in his box. I mean, he's including pretty much everything he can think of and then just dazzling us with all of his abilities to show these reflections. I mean, I chose this painting to begin my essay because the way the artists are gazing in and looking out, those are sort of the two motifs that you see throughout this period. You know, they're trying to figure out who they are. They're taking that you know, their Danish identity very seriously, their artistic identity very seriously. But at the same time, they're getting out of the art school and getting out and to look into the world because their world had really changed. I mean, they were bombed. There was famine. There was bankruptcy. There was sickness. It was not a happy time. And they had to kind of really search hard to figure out how they're going to go forward. So I do think this painting sort of stands in for everything that's at stake in this exhibition. I wanted to ask about that. Are there references or constructions within this painting that you read as or consider as being about the Danish national situation in the 1820s? Not not the Danish national art situation, but the broader national political European situation. Yeah, I mean, there are other paintings that do that more prominently. I do think, you know, the skull here that's represented both on the table and then represented again in the sketchbook, like this theme of death and vanitas is very prominently placed. You know, that doesn't have to necessarily mean that it's about Denmark because that's a, you know, something going back all the way to, you know, the Dutch use the vanitas symbol a lot. But you do, I think, get this you know, interesting, you know, it's contrived. I mean, the image is completely contrived, but one way you really see that aspect is in what he's wearing on his head. So he's got this beret sort of on his head, but underneath that, he has the visor, the black visor that sticks out that they wore to, you know, sort of protect their eyes, like early sunglasses, if you may, when they go outside, but he doesn't need to wear that inside. So you've got like every trope of a painter sort of present here, and to really kind of call your attention to the fact that this is, you know, a critical moment when they're searching. I mean, this sense of looking and searching and and quandary and engagement, you definitely get that more present, I think, in this painting than you get about the Danish plight, per se. And then there's the bird in a cage. Yes. Stephanie Schrader, thanks very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.